You're listening to Michael Easley In Context, and now your host, Michael Easley. Welcome to In Context, where our goal is to help you understand God's Word in the context it was written and how it applies to your life. Today on the broadcast, you'll hear from Bob McEwen and from Katie Thompson. Let's join those interviews in progress. Bob McEwen is with the Council for National Policy, uh, headquartered in the Washington, D.C., Northern Virginia area. He represented Ohio in the United States House of Representatives for six terms. Bob, thanks for giving us some time on In Context. You know, the pleasure is mine, Michael. I'm one of the millions of people across the country that are fans of yours, and it's a pleasure and a delight to be on the program. Millions? You're a politician, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> well, wherever I go, that's you're my claim to fame that I that I know Michael Easley. Oh. You have your capacity to to teach the word is an envy to those that love God's word across the country. Well, you're awfully kind. Bob, we got an election coming up, and the month of October is here, and we want to help some of our listeners kind of nudge their thinking. And I got a host of questions for you, but I want to start out with a passage that we're very familiar, maybe too familiar with. Paul wrote in Romans, we call it chapter 13, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Therefore, no authority is established except from God. Whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God and they who have opposed it will receive condemnation for themselves. Rulers are not a cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister, or we could say servant, of God to do good. So you and I know this passage well, but help me out. We're in a context where it's not always, government isn't always good, and it isn't always our minister. So how does a believer navigate uh, this uh, incredible system we have? Well, the belief was for thousands of years that you had kings, and there was a brief period when God wanted to be king, but the Israelis weren't satisfied with that. So basically, you, you had monarchs that made rules. The uniqueness was the American system that said the individual was God's anointed power. And just as an aside for people that don't want to say it was founded as a Christian nation, it says that we hold these truths, and of course we know what truth is, uh, to be self-evident, all men are created equal. Now, where did the idea of created equal come from? Hmm. It certainly wouldn't come from uh, the the Hindu caste system, or uh, Buddha karma, or Muslim, or whatever. It's the scriptural definition that we are equal in God's eyes, and that those people are entrusted by God with rights, and to secure those God-given rights, governments are instituted among men. So the uniqueness of America was that God gave rights to individuals, to his children, and we loan power to government. That's upside down from every other system of government, such that because of that system, this 4% of the population of the world has created more books, more plays, more symphonies, more copyrights, more inventions than the rest of the world combined every year. For thousands of years, people hoped to someday fly. Americans invented the airplane, the light bulb, and the telegraph, and the telephone, and the global positioning system, the internet, the air conditioner, put men on the moon. This place, the lighthouse for the gospel, gives more to missions than the rest of the world combined by a factor of six-fold, six times as much as the other 96% combined. So it has been prosperous, it has been a blessing to the world, and you and I 
are the sovereigns. We are the ones that choose the direction of the country. And we will, I, I don't know of any other way to say this, we will be accountable to God, just as the kings were accountable to him. We will be accountable for this lovingly marvelous treasure that has been gifted to us over these last 200 years, that what we do with it, do we drop it, destroy it, discard it, or do we keep it and allow it to prosper and proceed? That decision rests in our lap over these next 50 days or so. Now, I've heard you speak on numerous occasions, and it always impresses me, your grasp of American history. I heard you once explain the three branches of government to a group of fifth graders. And I sat there and I said, you know, most college graduates couldn't <laughs> articulate it as well as you or as succinctly. But for our listeners, give us the Bob McEwen primer on the three branches of our government. Well, Article 1 is there shall be a Congress. That is that all legislation, all expenditure of money, all collection of taxes, and all rules shall be done by the elected representatives of the people. And then there's a vehicle. They don't go around and enforce that. They have an executive branch that makes that to be done. That's the president and his law enforcement officials. And then when there's a conflict between the two, there is a judiciary in which they say who was right in this question. So those are the three countervailing uh, powers of government. And it's important to understand that the people are the sovereigns, and that is that our rights, are, we're not a democracy in that our rights don't come from the majority. And this is significant because this is where the politics breaks down. Now, expand yeah. on that a little bit yeah. because when the average person hears Republican or Democrat, they pigeonhole that into a party. And this well, is. And, a and, and that's right. It's not incorrect, Michael, to do so because Democrats believe that the majority makes the rules. And so when. Uh, Obamacare came to the floor of the House. The Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, went to the well and said, today we are going to create a right to health care. Now, I just quoted for you a minute ago in our birth certificate, the Declaration of Independence, that our rights come from God. And so, therefore, we understand that our rights don't come from the majority. In a democracy, the rights come from the majority. Our daughter was in Rwanda for a year. 80% of the people in Rwanda are Hutu, 20% are Tutsi. The 80% voted to kill the 20%, and over the course of 90 days with machetes, they killed a million people. That's when the rights come from the majority. In America, we have a republic, if you can keep it, to the republic for which it stands. The republic is there to enforce the rights that came from God. Now, here's where the conflict comes. We democratically elect people to run the republic. But it is a republic. It's not a democracy as such. Therefore, if you can vote 95 to 5 to kill Jews, you can't do it in America because the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness come from God. And that's the distinction. Those that believe in a republic believe that there is limited government. Those that tend to be Democrats believe that I can invent rights. I can create various rights. And here's the danger of that. If I can create a right, I can also do away with a right. I can create or destroy. That's tyranny. And that's what our founders were afraid of. That's why the word democracy does not appear in any of our founding documents, because they wanted people to know our rights come from God, not from the majority. So to the voter in the poll who slept through civics class, give me a sentence, a democracy and a republic. A democracy is where rights come from the majority. 
a republic is where the government is limited by the people. So as a country, America is a republic, but yet when, when people hear that, they go, wait a minute, no, I can vote Democratic or Republican. Yeah, and because we choose the leaders of this republic, and there are certain things that they cannot do, and who decides that? The Supreme Court, if there's an arbitration, the Supreme Court will decide, and that's where Republican and Democrat break down. We believe that government should do only, as Abraham Lincoln said, only those things which a man cannot do better for himself. Mm -hmm. Democrats tend to believe that anything they come up with, housing, health insurance, or anything that are light bulbs, the size of the tank on your toilet, they think that they have the right to tell people all kinds of things because they have a majority. Well, we believe in limited government, and the government should do only those things which we cannot do better for ourselves. So there's a conflict between Republicans and Democrats. All right. We're watching polls every day. It seems like there's two or three new polls uh, as we get close to this election. And we get poll dizzy, and polls obviously can be measured inaccurately, and there's leanings. But when you watch these polls, Bob, you see majority votes. You'll see tens of thousands of people turn out for candidate A, a small number turn out for candidate B. We saw this with Obama. Massive crowds turn out for him. But at the end of the day, the population count does not elect a president. It's the electoral college. So help us. Electoral college is governed how? Well, there was a little section in the Constitution. Let me just say a little bit about the Constitution. Now, there was a part of it, a little seemingly throwaway line that said this. It said that no one could become president of the United States unless they carried half of the country. And Benjamin Franklin and others talked about the divine insight that brought these people together to write this Constitution. And so in order to become president of the United States, you have to carry half of the nation. And how did they decide that? Well, they took all of the members of Congress and how much is given to each state, and they get an electoral college vote for each one of those people. And unless you carry half of the country, you won't become president. And now that little safety valve there has kept us from being like other countries where you have people elected with only 13 or 15 percent of the vote because you had 30 people that were running and whoever got the highest number got in there. Let me just explain that if you didn't have the Electoral College and you didn't have to carry half of the country, then every movie star would run, every billionaire would run, every mayor and governor would run. And you could have the governor of Los Angeles and the mayor of New York could be elected president with 15 percent of the vote because the rest of it was all split in a million pieces. And that would be very damn. It would destroy what America is. So there was a provision that in addition to the votes, whoever carried that state would get those votes in the college. And unless you got to half of that, which is now 270, unless you compile together the 270 votes, then you cannot be president. That means that we've always had a two-party system has been the genius of the blessing of our political system. So again, give it to me in a couple of sentences. We've got population bases that go out. Obviously, there's gerrymandering. Obviously, different districts try to ply and position themselves so they get those that are more friendly to whether it's red or blue. But at the end of the day, the tallies of votes, how does that affect the Electoral College? Every state is, is given a vote according to the number of congressmen that it has. Now, how do you get the number of congressmen? You take the population of the country every 10 years, divide it by 435 because there's 435 members, and then you apportion them out. So in Ohio, we have 18 members of Congress. 
in Nebraska, you have three members of Congress. Now your state has two senators, so you add two to that. So Ohio would get 20 electoral college votes. And Nebraska has three members of the House and two senators. It would have five. And you just total those up. Let's take Wyoming. It only has one congressman. And so you would have one congressman plus two senators. That means that Wyoming has three electoral votes. And you just piece those together and you have to carry half of the country. Otherwise, you would just get who had the most votes in one clump. That person would become the president and it would be a totally different form of government. So why then does it matter for people to vote if the Electoral College is going to be the deciding factor? Because they will determine who their electors, they all meet in Washington, in the Capitol, in this third week of November, first week of December. And whoever comes from Tennessee, whoever comes from Nebraska, whoever comes from Ohio, is based upon who got the most votes in that state. There's two sets of electors. There's electors for Trump. And there's electors for Hillary. And if they carry, let's take uh, Florida in the year 2000. George Bush carried Florida by 537 votes. So he had 537 more people showed up. And that meant that those electoral votes from the state of Florida went for George Bush instead of Al Gore, which were more than sufficient number to determine who the president was going to be. And so Bill Bright, who moved the head of Campus Crusade, moved it to Orlando. Bill Bright said, I chose the president because we brought more than 500 people (laughs) to Florida and they voted for George Bush. So every vote counts. (laughs) Thanks so much, Bob, for being on the broadcast. Now we want to introduce you to Katie Thompson. She's the editor of Shared Justice, an online publication for millennials published by the Center for Public Justice. She's also co-author of Unleashing Opportunity, Why Escaping Poverty Requires a Shared Vision of Justice. She's a guest writer for Christianity Today's Hermeneutics and a self-proclaimed news junkie. Katie, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. Katie, you recently wrote a piece uh, for Christianity Today called To the Confused, Apathetic, and Undecided Christian Voter. And you're trying to encourage readers to show up and vote. First of all, is it a moral obligation for people to participate in an election? As the title of the piece suggests, I've come across not just millennials, but um, friends, family who truly are at a loss this election season. They're feeling confused. They're feeling disillusioned, apathetic, or simply just undecided. So when people ask this question, do I need to vote this election season? I often say, yes, I think you do. And I try to frame that as scripture talks about loving our neighbor, seeking the welfare of our families and our communities. And that is a moral obligation. I think that's made clear in scripture. One of the ways I would argue that that is expressed, this loving of our neighbor, is through political participation, including voting. You uh, talk about an IDK, I don't know, attitude, and it's almost like a, a white flag in the political process. Define for us what we're against rather than what we're engaging in issues for. Yeah, I think that's a big problem that we see today. Often people look at the complexity of the issues and the injustice that is in our nation, in our world, in our political parties, and they do. They want to wave that white flag and check out of the process. But I don't think that's what God calls us to. Uh, When we look at the narrative of Scripture, where we see that we do live in a fallen world, however, God calls us to redemption and to renewal. And that's something He invites us into. 
and that encompasses political institutions. I think that he invites us into a broken and fallen system, but calls us to do the work of redemption and renewal in those spaces. When we frame things in terms of what we're against rather than what we're for, I don't think that's a helpful position. Ultimately, I think as Christians, we should be offering a hopeful vision, a hopeful outlook for how we can engage with these issues. Now, in your article, you talk about four suggestions for the confused, apathetic Christian voter. Can you run through one or two or three of those? Yeah, absolutely. One of them, and this one is probably the one that gets the most pushback, is joining a political party. That's kind of an uncomfortable thing for a lot of 20 and 30-somethings, and I think everyone has struggled with that and finding good fit. My argument that I would make is that political parties are a way that we can engage issues and topics outside of ourselves. We're part of something bigger. As I quote Gideon Strauss in the article, he writes that, Joining a political party is the means by which a raw passion for justice gets tempered into a real instrument for long-term political faithfulness. I think that joining a party is important. I think that often people are tempted to forsake that because they don't see a candidate or a party that they can fully get behind or support. There are issues within that party they don't want to be associated with. But I would encourage joining that party, encourage them to think about if you want to see change, then do it from within. Change is not going to come from pointing from the outside, but instead we need faithful people, people with visions of the good that God has created us to do, to be within these parties, be promoting ideas and topics that they are passionate about. So if millennials are reticent to join a party, and we could go across spectrum, we could go to people as old as me and older that say, you know, I don't like Republican, don't like Democrats. This Green Party or Libertarian Party, that looks pretty intriguing. The prevailing wind would say you're throwing away your vote because those are they're not even marginal. They're inconsequential. If I said, hey, I'm going to join the Libertarian or Green Party or some other third or fourth or fifth party, what would you say to them? Is that still a good thing? Yeah, I'm not really in a position where I can comment upon my personal thoughts of the validity of the platforms, um, but I would, thinking about principle, say, yes, you're a part of something. You're joining, checking into the system versus waving your white flag. I think places where we can truly transform parties is from within, and I think that's the place we're called to be in. So let's just envision you're talking to 100,000 millennials. What's your comment you want them to hear? I think I would say you rightly have passion and you care about loving your neighbors as God calls us to and caring for the poor and the marginalized around the world. And I would encourage you to find the roots of that passion and think about how can change come. Often we hear if the church would just be the church, then we could fix the foster care system or refugee issues. And on the other side, the government would just do its job and we wouldn't need all these other players in the system. I don't think either of those is an accurate view. I think that government does have a role to play, but it's not all government. It requires the participation of other institutions in society, like church, schools, families. That's a very helpful way to channel your energy. We've been talking with Katie Thompson on the site. You can find out more information about shared justice, and you can find the link to her article in Christianity Today. Katie, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much, Michael. I appreciate it. And I expect you'll be out there on Election Day? That's right. <laughs> see everyone else out there, too. <laughs> All right. Blessings. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you. Bye. 
Have a question or comment about today's show? Send Michael a note on Twitter at Dr. Easley. Thanks again for listening.